Good morning and welcome to our service. We're glad that you're here. As always, we're thankful to have visitors with us. It is a holiday weekend. We have a lot of our own folks away. We pray that they'll have a safe journey. It is a busy summer. A lot of things have been going on. We've had people coming and going. Our young folks have been extremely busy. This week kicks off our VBS, and we want to encourage each and every person to make plans to be a part of that this week. I know, as was mentioned a moment ago, a lot of work has gone into the VBS, and we would love to have your participation. We're certainly thankful for our young people and all the great work that they have done in preparation, as well as our teachers, and so we believe it'll be a great, great week. We're going to be looking today at Ephesians chapter 5. Specifically, we want to look together at verses 23 through 27 as we think about the Lord's glorious church. As we talk today about the church, I want to just emphasize the importance of this, of this institution. Many of you know that the church is one of three divine institutions ordained by Almighty God. The other two being the civil government and the home. And there are a lot of people in the world today that maybe misunderstand the importance, significance of the church. When you look at Ephesians chapter 5, it is abundantly clear that in the mind of God, the church is extremely important. As a matter of fact, it is so important that Paul said the saved are in the church, according to verse 23. As we begin today, I want to just spend some time and talk, first of all, about the Lord's love for the church. When we talk about Jesus' love for the church. Now, in chapter 5, Paul here draws an analogy between Christ and the church and the husband-wife relationship. And so in verse 25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The word love here, in the original, signifies the highest form of love. It is that sacrificial, self-giving, emptying type of love. And Paul said that the husband is to have that kind of love for his mate. Just as Jesus had that kind of love for the church or his body. And sometimes we might ask the question, why does Jesus love the church? I think there are a couple of reasons, and no doubt there are many, many reasons. But the first is, at least in my mind, the first reason Jesus loves the church is because it was divinely planned. You see, God in heaven orchestrated the institution that we know as the church. He was the architect of that. Back in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us in verses 9 through 11 that the church or the kingdom of God, that it exists today according to the eternal purpose of God the Father. 
In other words, God in heaven, in the long ago, decreed that the church would become a reality. Isaiah, who penned his book some 750 years or so before Jesus came to earth, talked about the church as an exalted mountain that would be exalted above the hills. And he said, all nations shall flow into it. That exalted mountain that Isaiah foretold of was the church, the kingdom of God. Daniel in chapter 2 of his book, as he relates his interpretation of a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had many, many years ago. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the king of Babylon. And in the unveiling of that dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said that in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. The kingdom, he said, would not be left to other people, but it would break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom that Daniel foresaw in the long ago was the church. Interestingly, when John the Baptist began his public ministry, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 3 of his book, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist began preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same institution that Daniel foretold of, as well as Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus began his public ministry, he said the very same thing. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus loves the church because it was divinely planned. There's a second reason why Jesus loves the church, and that is because it was divinely purchased. You have to understand that this institution that we talk about and that is identified by Scripture as the church, the body, the kingdom, it cost Jesus his life, his blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul, in talking to the elders of the church from Ephesus, while he was in Miletus, said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you know that Jesus promised to build the church? In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, after Peter affirmed that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, and I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus here promising to build the church. Now in Mark 9, verse 40, rather in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said, There are some standing here that shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. The kingdom he was talking about, again, the church. And Jesus would give himself for the church. He would lay down his life for the church. He would shed his blood. And so in Ephesians 5, verse 25, again, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Those of us who are a part of the church, we are a part of that blood-bought institution 
that cost Jesus his life. He gave himself for this institution so that we might be a part of it. Now there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. Not only does Paul identify the Lord's love for the church, but he tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the leader of the church. Look, if you would, at what Paul said in verse 23. Just as Christ loved the church, the Bible says Christ is the head of the church. As we explore this point, I want to begin by talking about the body's relationship to the head. Now, the word head that is spoken of by Paul here, metaphorically, carries with it the idea of anything that is supreme or chief or prominent. Do you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul told Timothy in the long ago that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords? And he said, there is only one potentate. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the head over his body. Now, according to Scripture, the Bible tells us that there is one head and there is one body. For example, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head of the one body. And Ephesians 4, 4, Paul said there is one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. In Colossians 1.18, Paul said he is the head of the body of the church. So Jesus Christ is the head of the church or the body. As the head of the church and as the one who is preeminent or prominent or supreme in this realm, there are some responsibilities that rest on those of us that belong to the church. So I want us to think for just a minute or two about the responsibilities that the body has to the head. Look again at what Paul said in verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... Paul here is saying that the church, the body, is under the reign or rule of the head. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Think about your physical body. Your physical body reacts or takes its cue from what? Your head. That is, from the brain. Well, the body, spiritually speaking, the church, the kingdom takes its cue, its lead, from the head. Jesus is the only one that has the right to rule or regulate the behavior of the church. 
Now, there are some people that have the idea that what we need would be an earthly head because Jesus, after all, is in heaven. What we have to understand is that even though Jesus is in heaven and the body is on earth, he can control the church through his word. That's how he regulates the behavior of the church. Now the word submit, Paul said that the church is subject to Christ. That word subject or submit, as some translations render it, is a Greek military term. It carries with it the idea of troop divisions under the command of a leader. The word means to place oneself under the control of another. So as members of the body of Christ, what we're saying is we are under the control of Jesus. He is the one who legislates our behavior. He's the one that tells us how to live, how to act, what to do. In James chapter 4, verse 12, James said, there is one lawgiver. There are not two lawgivers. There are not two heads. There are not three heads. No more than there are three bodies or two bodies. But rather, biblically speaking, there is one head and one body. Now again, I said just a moment ago that Jesus regulates the conduct of the church through his word. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18? All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountaintop in the presence of Peter, James, and John, God the Father spoke out on that occasion. And he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then here's what he said. Hear him. That is, whatever... Whatever we do in this life, in the realm of the faith once for all delivered, we do it in accordance with the will of God. We do it by the authority of Jesus. In Colossians 3.17, Paul said, Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What Jesus has done has left us a will. It's the last will and testament. It's called the New Testament. We're not under the old law, but rather we are under the new law, the law of Christ. The old law was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2.14. God has taken that law out of the way. Today we are under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. It's called the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. It's identified as the law in James 2 at about verse 12. We are to speak and to do as those who will be judged according to the law. That is the law of Christ. So what's my responsibility as a member of the church, as a person who is identified with the body of Christ? My responsibility is to submit. My responsibility is to do things as God has ordained them in His Word. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul here is saying that God is the one that regulates the behavior, the conduct of the church. 
Well, how does he do that? Through his word. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In chapter 3, in the preceding verses, in verses 1 through 7 specifically, Paul outlines the qualifications of an elder. In the New Testament church, of course, universally speaking, Jesus is the head. We are the body. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. Now, locally speaking, the church is subject to Christ, who is the head. But the church in a local setting is governed or led by a group of men identified by Scripture as elders, pastors, bishops, overseers. Nowhere in the New Testament do we ever read of a one-man pastoral system. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, they ordained elders in every church, plural. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul left Titus on the Isle of Crete for what purpose? One purpose was to ordain elders. Again, plural. So you have men that meet the criteria in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, and they function as overseers. And they must give an account of the flock or the church under their oversight. In verses 8 through 13, you have men who are qualified to serve as deacons. They are special servants of Almighty God. Now back in chapter 2, we talk about Jesus being the head, the lawgiver, the one who is the leader of the church. In chapter 2, Paul talks about the leadership of the church, specifically in the context of worship. You remember back in verse 4, Paul had said that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The word men in that text denotes both male and female. God's desire, both male and female, be saved. Now you drop down to verse 8. And Paul said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. He changes the word in verse 8. It's not male or female, but rather it is restricted to male only. Now there are some churches today that are becoming what has been identified as gender inclusive. And by that, what they simply mean is that women are going to take a more prominent role in the work and worship of the church. You see, Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. What we're talking about is not a cultural phenomenon, but rather the Apostle Paul goes all the way back to creation. And he talks about the headship of the male. Now in worship, what God has said is the male is to take the lead. Does that diminish the ability and the work of a female? Absolutely not. Sometimes individuals will say, well, she has a lot of ability and she could really do a great job preaching or teaching in a mixed assembly. Please listen very carefully. We're not talking about ability. We're talking about authority. You see, if we're talking about the church that we read about in the Bible, the church that we read, up, read about in Scripture, well, we have to do things God's way. It's not my opinion. 
It's not my prerogative. I don't have the right to say that women can preach or that they can teach in a mixed assembly. I don't have the right to say that women can serve on the Lord's table. Why is that? Because God in heaven has already decided that. It's not up for debate. Let me just preface this thought with these words. There are elderships and there are preachers that are looking into this situation and talking about gender inclusion. And there are some elderships that are allowing women to take a more public role in the work and worship of the church. They don't have that authority. There is not an eldership on earth in the Lord's church that has that authority. Now they can do that and they can allow women to to work and to be involved in a more expanded role. But you need to understand this. If that happens, they're not following the New Testament as is set forth. You see, God is very clear. Now, the worship of the church falls under the authority of Jesus. Jesus said, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There are five acts of worship. I don't have the right to change what God has set in motion. What I have the responsibility to do is to honor his word, to be willing to do things God's way. There are a lot of people in our world today that misunderstand the worship of the church specifically as it relates to why we do not use mechanical instruments of music. We don't use mechanical instruments of music because we can't afford them. It's not because we don't like the sound of an instrument because many of us do. We appreciate the beautiful melody that is set forth by those who have the ability to play an instrument. The reason we sing is because God said to sing. And when God said sing, that excluded everything else. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, to sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In Ephesians 5, Paul would say, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. The word melody there means to pluck or to play. And the instrument that we are to pluck or to play in our worship to God is the human heart. Again, I don't have the right. I don't have the authority to worship any other way than what God has outlined in Scripture. There's a third thing I want you to see very quickly in our study today. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the liberator of the church. In verse 26, Paul said, speaking of the great love that Christ has for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
What Paul is saying here is that as members of the body of Christ, we are to be a distinctive group of people. Well, why is that? Because the church is composed of sanctified people. Well, what's the process of sanctification? What does the word sanctification mean? It means to be set apart from profane things and to be dedicated to God. Well, when does that occur? When, we, when we're baptized into Christ? When we obey the gospel? Listen again, Paul said that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. When we submit to the teaching of our Lord, obeying the gospel of Christ, the Bible tells us that our sins are washed away. Let me just give you a couple of verses along these lines to reinforce what we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11 he said, And such were some of you. But you were washed, and what else? You were sanctified. That is, they were set apart from the world unto God. When did that occur? When they were baptized into Christ? Why are we baptized into Christ? So that our sins can be washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. So that we can enjoy the remission of sins, Acts two thirty eight. So that we can be identified among the saved, Mark sixteen sixteen. Well, who are the saved? Look at Ephesians five verse twenty three. Jesus is the Savior of the body. That means that if I'm a member of the church, if I'm a part of the body, I'm among the saved. I have been sanctified or set apart. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he was writing to people that had been divisive. He was writing to individuals that were taking one another to, to the court of law. He was writing to individuals whose lives had been steeped in immorality. And he said, that they had been washed, they'd been sanctified. And so in chapter 1, verse 2, he wrote to the church of God at Corinth, to those who were sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Every person that obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ is called a saint. We're a distinct member of the body of Christ. We are an elect race, as Peter said. We are a holy nation of people. What are some challenges that we face as sanctified people? There are some challenges. Paul speaks of those spots or wrinkles. You see, the Lord's desire is that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But listen to him. That it should be holy and without blemish. As a child of God, I am to follow after holiness. The Hebrew writer said, without which no man shall see the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that we are to be holy. Why? Because God in heaven is holy. He has set us apart from the world unto His usage. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul said, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. He said, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which, which is in you. And so he said, you are to glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So as a child of God, I have to withstand the influence of the world. 
Romans chapter 12. Paul said that one of the real challenges that faces those of us who belong to the body of Christ is being conformed by the world. And really the whole idea is that as a child of God, we're not to allow the world to pour us into its mold. Paul said, be not conformed unto the world, but rather we're to be transformed. In James 1.27, James said that one of the marks of pure or true religion is to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I want to ask you a question. As a child of God, can people tell you're different? I'm not talking about being weird or anything like that. I'm talking about can they tell you're different in the sense that you belong to Jesus? Can you say, as Paul did, Christ lives in me? When people listen to you talk, observe your behavior, can they tell you're a child of God? If they can't tell you're a child of God by the way you carry yourself, the way you talk, the way you, the way you act, something's not right. James, in James chapter 4, warned against the world and the corruptive influences of the world. He said, those who become a friend of the world make themselves an enemy of God. John said, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, he said, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, he said, is passing away, and the lust thereof. I want you to listen very carefully. If your life is such that you just blend in with the world and people can't tell a difference, something's not right. Something's not right in your life. Now we talk about challenges to those of us who are sanctified people. One is the influence of the world. Another is immorality. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about those who are engaged in reveling. That word carries with it the idea of drunkenness and carousing. Please listen. As a child of God, we don't have any business out bar hopping and out drinking and carousing. Why? Because we're children of God. God expects better of us. We're to be holy people. We are to set the standard. God has set the bar very high. God wants us to live like we belong to Him. We talk about immorality. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter, in chapter 4, verse 3, this is the will of God. Listen to him. Even your sanctification that you abstain from fornication. We're not to engage in sexual relations outside the marital relationship. I know what the world says. And I know in the world, people don't have a problem with living together or as some would say, shacking up. But Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that the younger women are to marry and then bear children. 
We've got things mixed up in our society, and sadly, sometimes even in the church. I understand people make, make mistakes. People give in to temptation. I understand that. And when that happens, what do we do? We repent, turn around and say, you know what? I'm not doing that again. We'll live faithfully. But we can't live like the world. We can't engage in immorality in immorality, and think God's pleased with it. Because you see, the Bible says that those who engage in those practices shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's just that plain. And then, of course, there's indifference. Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus. The time was about A.D. 62, about 33 years later, John the Apostle wrote from the Isle of Patmos. And in chapters 2 and 3, we have a survey of the, of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus looks into those churches and makes an analysis. He talks about the good things they were doing and the bad things they were doing. To these very people, he said, you have left your first love and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. In other words, Jesus, who was, who was to have been number one, was no longer in his rightful position. They didn't love him like they used to love him. And so the remedy was to repent. And then very quickly, let me just say, another spot or blemish is illiteracy. How well, you, how well do you know the scriptures? Paul said, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart always. Set him apart. And then he said, be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. The idea is that I need to understand what the Bible teaches so that I can tell others what I believe and what I, what I practice. If I can't do that, then here's a question. Have I really set him apart in my mind? Am I really dedicated to him? I want to close by asking this question. Are you a member of the glorious church that we read about in the New Testament? Jesus is the Savior of the body. And those who are saved, they're in that body. And here's what people need to do to become a member of that body. Number one, they have to hear the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. They have to put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Do what Peter did. Affirm in your mind that you believe Jesus is the Son of the living God because Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. And then repent. Just turn away from the old life. Confess the name of Jesus before others and then be immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Well, why do you need to do that? So you can have remission of sins, Acts 2.38. So you can contact the blood of Christ, which washes away all sins. And then the exhortation is to be faithful until death, Revelation 2.10. It may be that you're here today. And there are spots and wrinkles in your life. I want you to know that God still loves you.
God's interested in you being a saved person. If for whatever reason you've gone back into the world, could we pray with you and for you? The Bible assures us God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Would you come as we stand and sing?